Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. The recent federal election again placed Quebec at the center of attention for many voters. The declarations of Premier François Legault about not wanting to facilitate a pan-Canadian pipeline prompted calls for a review of equalization payments. Quebec has been accused of being hypocritical, choosing instead to consume the dirty oil coming out of the Middle East or Latin America in preference to Canadian oil and gas. Quebec's Bill 21, which disallows public servants in authoritative positions to wear religious symbols, also triggered a discussion. The campaign showed a fickle Quebec electorate that collapsed the NDP and gave new energy to the Bloc Québécois. The reality that Quebec's place in Confederation is still uncertain remains with us, and I wanted to talk about it. My guest today is Robert Calderisi. He's just published Quebec in a Global Light at the University of Toronto Press. We reached him at his office in Cold Spring, New York. Robert Calderisi, welcome to the mic. Thank you, Patrice, for inviting me. I'm a little embarrassed to be talking about Quebec from the banks of the Hudson River. Well, it's a beautiful spot, I'm sure. (laughs) It's a yeah, but I prefer to be doing it from the St. Lawrence. But I'm writing my next book in New York City, so I'm not very far. We'd like away. to have you in studio. We're glad we can reach you by phone. <laughs> Robert, I want to start with a question you might not expect. You, you're, you're, The title of your book is Quebec in a Global Light. And I'm thinking about Quebec and Expo 67. The theme, of course, was man in his world. Your book is about Quebec in the world. What is your souvenir of Expo 67? How did you experience it when we were celebrating Man and His World? Well, it made me very proud. I was studying history at university, so I understood the significance and um, the sweetness of Canada's 100th birthday. And only later did I realize that, of course, it was also Quebec's first grand entrance on the world stage. And I took three days off from my summer job to follow Charles de Gaulle around the expo site. I got within inches of him uh, very often. And um, I missed his speech from the Hôtel de Ville. But um, otherwise, I, it was, it's a moment I've, I, I, I think back to with great pride. I, I still also treasure the, the cosmopolitanism uh, of the time and that summer. And who knows, deep down, it probably uh, inspired me to pursue an international career. That's what prompts me to ask you the question, because you come at the topic of contemporary Quebec from a very different angle. You're born and raised in Quebec, but you left to pursue your studies. You started your career at the Department of Finance in Ottawa and then at the Canadian International Development Agency. And then your career took a different turn. First, you went to work at the OECD and then at the World Bank in Washington for a long time. Uh, how has your career and, and your career path over these many years changed your view of Quebec after, after a 35-year absence? Well, to begin with, working at the, the World Bank made me realize how important certain um, intangibles are you know, in economic and social progress, like uh, a sense of, of fairness, uh, openness to others, including immigrants, uh, a commitment to education, for everyone, even a respect for history and and culture. And until recently, uh, with respect to immigrants, Quebec had uh, all of these. Uh, I mean, the other advantage of living, working, or traveling in more than 100 countries is that you get to spot things that uh, make a society stand out. And when you go home, 
uh, you notice things that other people take for granted or uh, things that can change even though other people think they're unchangeable. So and you can tell a, a wart from a beauty spot. And so when I moved back to Quebec after being away for 35 years, I, I spotted the warts uh, and the beauty spots. Well, let's talk about the beauty spots. What makes you bullish? I mean, you are bullish about Quebec. You, you're full of hope about Quebec. What, what, uh, what makes you feel so positive? Well, uh, for the first time, Quebec has one of the strongest economies in Canada, and that's been going on for several years. Its credit rating is higher than Ontario's, which is most unusual. It also has one of the fairest uh, distributions of income in the world. It, the, income, the, the gap between the really rich and the really poor in Quebec is second only to Scandinavia, and that's not a bad uh, set of countries to be trailing behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone knows, too, that Quebec artists and business people, even social workers and researchers are innovative and set standards. And I've met people in Europe, particularly France, who admire those that example and try to follow it. And, of course, young people, too, this is new from when I was uh, their age, uh, are uh, outward-looking and interested in global causes like climate change and, and fighting poverty rather than the inward you know, inward-looking causes of the past. And they moved from English to French and to Spanish, Portuguese, German, and and other languages uh, with pride rather than being self-conscious about it. And most of all, there's an immense energy in Quebec. People feel it, and it's contagious. And, of course, there's energy. (laughs) Yes. The the clean power that uh, generates the the electrical grid couldn't resist. What exasperates you about Quebec? Well, well, the opposite of all of this. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the insularity, the pettiness, the purism, the suspicion of strangers, uh, the defensiveness that many Quebecers, uh, not just older ones, are capable of. And, and then the fuss about uh, headscarves is a perfect example of this. I've tried very hard in book, in the book and in conversations with others to, to say that... Um, People often get the subject wrong in Quebec, particularly English Canadians. Quebecers are not more racist or more anti-Muslim than other Canadians, but their their view on headscarves is deeply rooted in the, their belief in the separation of church and state, and also their strong belief in uh, the equality of men and women, both positions of which uh, you know Quebecers are proud. Headscarves are a a red flag uh, on both fronts. But I think it was still wrong to single out Muslim women to make their point. No one really believed that Quebecers were worried about crosses and the Jewish uh, skullcap. Mm. I knew, uh, I kind of predicted in the book, that a, a new government would act to settle people's nerves on the subject, but I wasn't expecting them to go so far as to include teachers and to grandfather only people in their current jobs. I mean, as it is, teachers who are promoted or will transfer to other schools have to choose between keeping their jobs or becoming less modest in their personal appearance or ignoring deep religious traditions. I think the law is a a stain on Quebec society. And And the proof of the pudding, the proof, sorry, it says the proof of the pudding is that the two people who first came up with a more limited version of the band, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, yes, and Jihad Bouchal, the sociologist, for different reasons, now 
opposed the law. Yes. And Quebec and Quebec Solidaire, the party that young people like a lot, which used to support a limited ban, changed its mind and strongly opposed the law because they felt it went against values of inclusiveness. It is a break with Quebec traditions, is it not? I wonder. No, I, I, I wonder. I, I, you know, in a way, I mean, Quebec has never has never treaded on on these grounds before. Uh, why? No, why now? It, why now? Well, do you think? It, what is astonishing to me, living now in the United States for a while, uh, is that no, even in Trump's America, no state in the United States has proposed anything like this, and uh, for Quebec to to set that pattern in North America is is really, really shocking. But of course, it's pure imitation of what the French have done. Tell us more they about that. A, Tell us more about that. What do you well, think the, is the, the link between well, Quebec and France well, like this? Well, on, on this, the, I mean, the French have been skeptical about religion since the... The French Revolution. The French, French <laughs> Revolution. And, um, uh, and, uh, and then since 1905, when uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, law on secularism or... Laïcité was passed. Laïcité, yes. Uh, in France, uh, there was a very sharp uh, uh, separation of church and state. But um, uh, it was only, you know, more recently, 2004, when the, the French first banned uh, headscarves in, uh, in, in schools. Um, but it's, they've just become much more pronounced on the subject. And I, I, I can only put it down to... Um, a kind of a perverse sense of patriotism, which is the republic above all, and uh, the Anglo-Saxon notion of uh, respecting uh, individual rights uh, rather than imposing a collective position that sort of takes over. You know, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Boris Johnson two years ago made fun of um, women in burqas walking on the streets of mm. London saying they looked like letterboxes or, um, <laughs> or bandits. Yes, but uh, and he was reprimanded for this by Prime Minister May. But even he wasn't suggesting uh, banning it. It's um, it's a shame because, of course, in, in Quebec, as I've suggested in the book, there's been a wonderful balancing of Anglo-Saxon and French uh, uh, values. Uh, in a, what uh, the Quebec historian Justin Le Tourneau calls a, a society of double inspiration, mm. and I think. You know this this law, which I hope will be overturned in the courts, is kind of punctures that beautiful image of a society drawing the both the best from both traditions. You know as well as I do that uh, the polls show that seventy percent of Quebecers favor this law. Yeah, it, it's it's shocking to me. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to predict it, and sort of it shook my confidence in some of the other uh, general. Many people say uh, that conclusions many, I draw. Many mm. people say that this is the sort of the last step in Quebec's long march towards secularization. The first mm. steps being the the quiet revolution, that uh, series of cataclysmic events in the 1960s that uh, launched this movement away from the church and towards more temporal attitudes um, in life. Uh, well, how do you interpret? That's why I come back to Expo 67. I mean, what is your sense of how Quebec has been able to think through its quiet revolution? Do you do you see a, a changing attitude towards the 1960s, or is it the continuation of a, of a, of a sort of a path that was set in those times? Well, I, I think you're, you more than anybody will know that uh, the, the phrase quiet revolution was a bit of a, an exaggeration. It's probably more accurate to say it was a, a, no, a noisy uh, evolution. Mm. Um, 
it seemed exciting at the time, like the election of Barack Obama uh, 50 years ago. But but what really changed? I mean, the power system was nationalized and the Ministry of Education yes. was established. But the, but the main forces at work weren't political, but uh, uh, social ones. Yes. So first, as you suggest, a rejection of the Catholic Church, both of which, the Catholic and the rejection, affect Quebecers even now. Yes. And education, which was rising even under the great blackness, so-called great blackness of the Duplessis years, um, a far greater revolution has been the internet and social media in the last 15 years. Mm. TV was important yes. in the 50s and 60s in bringing Quebec out of its uh, confines culturally and uh, psychologically. But, uh, but it was, uh, it was young it was, of course, also a, an affirmation, a strong reaffirmation of the fifth francophone, of the of the francophone sure. reality of Quebec. Right, uh, and uh, and it worked, but but there was still a there were still contradictions in in the values and the pronouncements of people who led the Quiet Revolution, including uh, Jean Lesage, who resisted, for example, secularization of religion, thinking uh, that uh, turning schools into sort of state schools without religion was somehow somehow promote atheism so there was a, there were there were there were traditional values wrestling with uh, modern uh, imperatives uh, to to move forward one of the for example one of the strange things about uh, duplessis he never borrowed money yes. and and so there was very little investment in the kind of infrastructure that uh, the the province needed and uh, so Borrowing became, and of course, public policy became much more important in in managing uh, the province. But um, essentially, uh, it was uh, these forces had been working their way through, uh, you know, uh, under the radar before the 1960 election. So my thinking is: Do you see Bill 21 as the logical? a logical uh, phase in the quiet revolution or is it a break with the quiet revolution? Yeah, no, I think it's, um, I think it's, I'm hoping it's the last uh, hurrah of, uh, uh, of anti-clericalism. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, the most remarkable thing about Quebec, which used to be the most Catholic uh, province in the country and the per- perhaps one of the most Catholic societies uh, in the world is that they've been obsessed and uh, and uh, opposed to religion in general, mm. and I think this law is an expression of it. I, I'd like to, I've, until now I've been focusing on the positive side of that uh, uh, rejection, a sense that uh, you know one one should not be overwhelmed or dominated by by um, religious leaders. But I think it's turned into a a, a bristling um, uh, discomfort. With uh, uh, anything that some Quebecers um, uh, regard as as foreign and uh, unnecessary. Now, let me jump a little bit because I want to come back to this. But there's another question I want to raise with you, and it's this: You say in your book that you believe that the struggle for independence in Quebec is done. Um, what's how do you read that phenomenon? Well, it's not really done. I mean, almost half of French speakers would vote. Yes, in another referendum. Mm. But the numbers aren't there to, to win. Right. And they'll get worse uh, as time goes on and uh, the hardliners die off. Um, young people have other things to worry about, although I do note that, 
again, their party of choice, and my favorite party as well, uh, Quebec Solidaire, has now raised the flag of independence on the flagpole. But I can't think of any practical reason, including fighting pipelines and climate change, that uh, would require Quebec to become independent. And uh, and Quebecers are generally uh, conservative. Yeah, 60% of them vote for the center or the center Right. Yes, it happens right. to be the same proportion of people who pay taxes. Right. So they have a certain sense of responsibility. And I don't see that hardcore of Quebec opinion sort of jumping into some kind of political adventure. Do you see something like Bill 21 hardening the lines between the nationalists and the federalists in Quebec? In other words, that the, the, the march towards a bill like Bill 21 would galvanize the independence movement? No, I don't think so. I think I think it's a particular subject which uh, which you know got on people's nerves and um, and got their goat essentially saying, you know, why are these foreigners imposing their values on us mm-hmm. when it's not foreigners imposing their values uh, right. on us? And um, uh, and I, and I, no, and I don't see it. As, I mean, I'd be wrong, but I don't see it as a, a broader trend of um, you know. Uh, resistance to the outside world. I think, as I say, young people are much more outward-looking than they used to be, and uh, I think that's the ultimate safeguard against uh, too much um, of this um, self-protection that Quebecers sometimes engage in. So let's go back to your title, the title of your book, Quebec in a Global Light. How do you see Quebec in a global light? What 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 has changed in Quebec that, that you perceive? Well, the most important... Uh, the thing is that uh, it's the only social democracy in North America, and and proud of it. Uh, even a, a conservative government has not uh, promised to do anything that would undo the the strong social safety net that protects um, people uh, in Quebec. And it's also a, a society, until recently, with this silly bill, where people get along remarkably well, given cultural differences. Of course, Quebec's situation is much simpler than really complex um, multicultural societies like Russia or Indonesia or India. But uh, it's still a remarkable example of of two very different cultures uh, uh, marrying each other more or less uh, peacefully. And that's a wonderful example to, to the rest of the world. In fact, when, I've been, when I interviewed young independentists for the book and I said, what would an independent Quebec bring to the construction of a better world, uh, what brick would it bring uh, that uh, it couldn't do as part of uh, Canada? And the answer all of them gave me was a respect for diversity and uh, cultural diversity in the world. Ironically, in Quebec, the two communities who are feeling vulnerable, the English-speaking community and the Muslim community, are... um, uh, are are being ignored by by this government and are largely ignored and um, they're and I think that that really spells trouble for the you know the medium term welfare of Quebec. How do you interpret the Bonjour High controversy? A perfect example of the nonsense that politicians are capable of <laughs> in the face of the common sense courtesy and hospitality of Quebecers. Mm. Any person who objects to hearing hi, or even worse, haven't heard it, but have heard other people hear it, 
uh, I think, have to ask themselves what's most important in Quebec, exclusion or inclusion, hospitality or a cold shoulder. And I think bonjour high is much better than just a mere high. And it's also, of course, a sign of how different Montreal is from the rest of Quebec. I'm, as, as you know, I yield to no one in wanting to see the French language loved and defended and revered. But mm-hmm. I think good manners are more important than good French or good English. And I think it's really, really sad that there's even a debate about this. I have to say, I'm I'm, I'm surprised. What's your what's do you, what do you think is the biggest misconception about Quebec in English Canada today? Oh well, that every Quebecois wakes up in the morning wanting to declare independence, <laughs> uh, or or lives on welfare at the expense of the rest of the country. Yes, I mean what Quebecers do realize when they get up every morning is that they are an endangered minority in North America, and mm-hmm. they need to do something to protect their language and culture. But Quebecers are already proud and independent in their hearts, like people from Saskatchewan or Newfoundland. They don't care what politicians in Ottawa or other provinces are arguing about. Their job is to balance uh, the everyday challenges of life with an overall joie de vivre. I mean, the Quebecers have a built-in advantage there (laughs) in their DNA, but other Canadians too generally get it right. Um, And as for living on welfare, I think the system of equalization payments is a mark of Canada's progressiveness, and it's arguably it's helped Quebec become the strong economy mm-hmm. and fair society that it is. Now, your book concludes with a bunch of recommendations, a bunch of uh, things you'd like to see in Quebec. Can you go through a couple mm-hmm. of those? I don't have them in front of me, but I'd be... I mean, so you talk, about, you talk about, uh, for example, a continuation of the social safety net? Right. Well, no, it's... I saw and see Quebec as a good example of a society wrestling with the two challenges all Western societies are are dealing with, which is uh, how to protect uh, you know national values against uh, the impact of mass uh, immigration, and secondly, how to establish a better balance between economic efficiency and uh, a strong sa- social safety net. And I think in both departments, Quebec. Uh, if not a model, it's certainly a good case study to look at for people who think it's impossible to do these things uh, uh, with, you know, without friction and uh, or even warfare. You do point out that Quebecers are overtaxed. Yes, but it's that's changing, and um, uh, and you know, like the French, uh, uh, some other Western Europeans are highly taxed. I think most, many Quebecers. Uh, uh, believe that they're, they're getting good services for what they pay. Unfortunately, uh, 40% don't pay taxes, so they don't really care yeah. about tax policy in general. But I think my, I recommended in the, in the book that the taxes should be reduced because, uh, you know, over time, because people are frustrated, particularly entrepreneurial. I'm not talking just business people, mm-hmm. the people who want to set up a small business or, or, um, or you know, other smaller enterprises, uh, are, um, are just strangled by uh, some some of the paperwork, but also some of the taxes. And I, th- I think Quebecers do need uh, a certain relief in that department. And uh, but I think even a Liberal government would have done that. Now, I mean, the, the, and the, the CAC government is committed to doing it through reducing uh, school taxes and also indirectly by increasing family allowances, which of course is another way of doing it for 
families uh, in need. You even recommend that the construction agency, the construction industry, I should say, uh, be subject to major reforms. Definitely. Of course, it's a, it's a very hot issue in Quebec because of people's uh, belief in trade unions. And uh, I also believe in trade unions, but I don't believe in trade unions taking advantage of the general public. And the construction unions in in Quebec are a glaring example of uh, privilege, uh, disgu- you know, disguising itself as uh, a good social policy. Uh, every contract in Quebec is 10%, at least 10% more expensive than it would be in, elsewhere uh, in Canada. And um, and, there, and there are lots of, um, you know, what the economists call feather bedding practices, which uh, make uh, construction in Quebec unnecessarily expensive. I think uh, the construction rules should be changed radically, while at the same time protecting, you know, the, the health uh, of, uh, of, uh, of construction workers. You make the point in your book that uh, you're very supportive of the manifesto that was issued by Lucien Bouchard almost a decade ago. Right. Uh, are you surprised that his prescriptions were not uh, pursued more aggressively? Lucien Bouchard made the case, uh, again, about 10 years ago, that Quebec needed to become more pro- productive, uh, more aggressive in terms of generating business and genera- uh, generating business opportunities. I agree with that. And in fact, I said earlier that the Quebec is still um, suffer from having been very Catholic. By the way, I'm not uh, I'm not anti-clerical myself. I am a Catholic, mm. but uh, but they but unfortunately one of the uh, one of the bits of heritage from Catholicism in Quebec is a suspicion of wealth, um, a feeling that anybody who's wealthy has somehow done something uh, wrong. On the positive side, of course, mm-hmm. that Catholic tradition is also explains why Quebec has been so careful to protect the the vulnerable uh, and and the poor. So that it's it's had a it's kind of been a a two edged heritage in in Quebec. Robert, in closing, fifty years later, sixty years later, do you see Quebec as better than it was in 1967, or do you think that it has stepped back in any ways? No, I mean it's it's. It's immensely better off uh, than it was at the time. At the time, uh, it was pointed out that uh, French Canadians were uh, similar to African Americans in the relative uh, income and level of education they had, you know, vis-à-vis the rest of uh, of society. And uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, Quebecers, particularly young Quebecers, are more educated than most other jurisdictions in North America. And uh, they have, you know, some of the best results in the world in mathematics and science um, um, comparisons. So, uh, and, and and that in any society, in any economy, is a really, really important and promising foundation for the future. Thank you very much for being my guest today. Thank you, Patrice. That was Robert Calderisi, the author of Quebec in a Global Light, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca 
where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on November 25, 2019 and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>